Hey, hey, Changemaker, welcome to Rethink Social Change Podcast, a show dedicated to helping social change practitioners improve the way they make change happen to achieve tangible and sustained impact. I'm your host, Ratiba Sharif. I've worked with some of the world's leading social change organizations for more than two decades on four continents to help them design better projects, learn from them, and measure their results. Using Rethink Social Change cards, I will challenge changemakers like yourself to share their experience on what worked, what didn't, and why in a very unique way. I will shuffle the deck of 54 Rethink Social Change cards and randomly draw four cards that will guide our conversation. So if you're ready for unscripted, jargon-free stories from the field, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the first episode of Rethink Social Change. Let me introduce the brave guest who accepted the challenge. Soledad Muniz is Director of Programs at InsightShare. She hails from Argentina and resides in London with her two children and husband. InsightShare empowers people by giving them and training them to use video cameras as tools for transformative change. With over two decades of experience, Soledad has spearheaded over 30 projects across the world, addressing critical issues such as the environment, indigenous rights, gender equality, and youth advocacy. I worked with her on the UNICEF Education and Peacebuilding Project in Western Central Africa, where we use participatory video and most significant change to evaluate outcomes of projects. She's one of the world's experts that merges community empowerment, research, and evaluation. Let's welcome her in. Hi, Soledad. So nice to have you. Lovely to see you, Rativa. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. You're very courageous too for accepting the challenge. You're the very first to go, but I know you really enjoy uh, participatory interactive tools for engaging participants in thinking about what they do. Yes, totally. And your cards are definitely part of that. So I was super excited to do a conversation using them. The other day, I brought them into a team meeting and everybody enjoyed them. And I think it helped you focus and dig deeper and not kind of go off track in conversations, sometimes even bringing issues that otherwise you wouldn't have brought because you get carried away on other things. So yeah, definitely uh, people enjoy using them. Oh, I'm so glad. That's uh, what they were made for. So you know them. I'm going to show them to you again. So we have 54 cards. And the way the conversation is going to work is that I am going to select three cards randomly from the deck. And then I'm also going to select another card to help us, what I call a trump card, to help us dig deeper later in the conversation. I will not show you the trump card. So if you're ready, I'm just going to start shuffling and randomly pick the cards that will guide our conversation. Yes, please. In the intro, I mentioned that you work for InsightShare and you've worked quite extensively using uh, participatory videos and uh, in evaluation projects. Yeah. So that's really cool. And I'm guessing that that's the experience you're going to use to talk. Yes, mostly. I think participatory media is, is a matter. All right. So let me take the card. One card, two cards. They're all uh, facing down and three cards. I'm going to show them in a minute, put these on the side and get my trump card. And that one is going to be this one. I'll put it here and put the others there. Let's see what the cards are. Okay. All right. So we have, in terms of context, we have the geographic context of the places you work in. Yeah. So here, this card is inviting you to talk about access, density of population, borders, etc. All right. So that's our first card. Our second card, which is a people's card, 
i.e. stakeholder card, is talking about people in the field, offices in the field. These, uh, in your case, I know you don't have field offices, but you work with field offices of different uh, clients. Yeah. So that's uh, one to think about. Totally. All right. And the last card is as a resource card and it's time. Right. The, the duration. Right. So it's about duration, etc. So my very first question is, what do they bring up in terms of experience? What are the ideas that come up with these three cards? I think they're really exciting in the sense that Field offices is something that for us is really important wherever we work. So that's why despite context, I was thinking what is specific to context and what is despite context. So engagement of local staff, Mm -hmm. either from civil society organizations, part of a project or big NGOs, uh, national or international ones, the staff who deals directly with the project is really important. So any work we do on participatory M&E mm-hmm. has to involve all stakeholders. So we wouldn't do a project where we only would work with one stakeholder and all the other ones are kind of in the blind in the process because we feel like that's not going to be conducive on learning, on accountability and lots of other factors that you know, it's quite essential for learning to then be used. So utilization of any process in an evaluation. So we normally insist on what is called the local evaluation team to be formed of a combination of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be community members, representatives, sometimes are already playing a key role in a project. For example, youth leaders or uh, young people uh, being mentors to others or community members acting as volunteers or field officers. So they, we start always with the community, then how that project is delivered. So sometimes it's delivered just by one organization, and many times is a partnership of two or three, just to say an example. So we would ask that every partner sends one or two staff to do the process. And those are staff who are close to the delivery of the project. So either programmatic staff, or if it's a mini staff, it has to be staff who are not in an office on a computer, but normally visiting and interacting with communities in an ongoing basis. So that is really, really important because in that way, we feel the learning is almost utilized in real time when people are going through the exercise, the activities and the process. So time is really an interesting card that came out there because you may have certain time frames in terms of a typical process of project delivery, key moments of m and where this exercise fits in that. But at the same time, beyond the amount of days that you have for an activity, I always say the shorter the time in which people can reuse their learning, the better. So it's almost, even if it's not what is a traditional real-time evaluation or, or monitoring exercise, it allows for that participatory exercises because of the transparency and the use of the results really quickly through the videos, rather than waiting three, four months for an approved report that has to pass through lots of layers of approval of lots of different people. Of course, there is space for that, but we feel that is not the only way in which you can store and disseminate learning. So, you know, it tends to be much more restrictive in terms of audience and use. So in that sense, you know, we actually, I think time and field officers are really, really important. The other key thing I would say is that the facilitators from InsideShare tend to be a combination of 
expertise. So you have local staff in the sense that is facilitators that either are from that country or from that region that work with us over time and others who may be, you know, international, like in any project based on skills. But more and more, we are working exclusively with our local and regional facilitators with the international support being more remotely and less about traveling and playing an expert role in a project. So that's been an important shift that we wanted to play over the years. And I think the pandemic has accelerated it. And we felt like, you know, that is is really important. So those two parts, I think, are easy. Context, you know, I'm trying to think where to put the emphasis. But if I'm going to look at an example. Remember, it's geographic context, right? Exactly, it's geographic context. So think rural, urban. Yes. You know, in terms of decision making as well, access, you know, where people are. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of my experience of rural spaces, you know, every location has its own complexities and you can kind of put a stereotype on one or another. But I would say in rural spaces, we have had experiences where uh, community members normally can participate more than in urban contexts, unless uh, this is part of a long-term ongoing project. For example, we work in Sierra Leone in Freetown in a long-term project of urban development with slum dwellers. So they were really integrated into program delivery and they were really easily able to participate in participatory ME. But in other contexts, I feel like in rural areas where, you know, maybe you work in villages of smaller amount of people, you can engage almost the whole village really quickly into activities. For when we work with, uh, in contexts where it's more like the refugee context or humanitarian nexus with development, Again, I think it's depending on the layers that you have to get for approval. Whenever we work in a context that is a settlement that is more stable and people have been more integrated, it's easier the access than when it's a settlement obviously managed by the national government and you have to pass a lot of layers of approval for what can be done, what cannot be done in those contexts. We have done it and it's quite exciting but also is really important in those cases, for example, not to underestimate the time that those approvals and those steps take for everybody. We actually recently, last year, worked in a settlement like this in Uganda and it worked really well, but it had enough time for planning for all of those not to be barriers and actually to allow participation when all stakeholders are involved and everybody understands the purpose of this, then the approvals get going much more than when suddenly they see a camera out of the blue. In participatory media, in particularly photography, video, any process with a camera, there can be a lot of misunderstandings in terms of why are you there with a camera, why the community is going around with a camera. So particularly making the distinction, this is not uh, journalism and it's really different. It's a community-led process for learning and for self-reflection and for actually informing better program design. So breaking all those stereotypes in conversations is important with enough time. Yeah. Sule, I thank you so much for this. And there's a lot actually to unpack and there's so much that came out of just three cards, right? There's a distinction that I'd like you to clarify for me because I know you use participatory video for enemy and you or for evaluation purposes and kind of iterative evaluations, but then you also use it as a tool for programming, yeah. as an empowerment tool. Could you t- Tell me the distinction between the two. Yes. And, uh, voila. And whether the, um, you know, with regards, say, to the your clients or your partners' field offices, uh, does that change? Because evaluation would have a 
kind of an objectivity element to it, right? So how does that, yeah, could you speak to that a little bit? Totally. So for evaluation, I would say the majority of our work is for supporting people to do better internal m so when it's about supporting better internal m and and more listening and better incorporation of people's perceptions into program design, then we definitely work with staff because they are the crucial, you know, programmatic or m and staff, depending on the size of an organization, are the crucial gatekeepers for learning to be incorporated and sometimes obviously passed to senior person who would take design decisions. But in the few occasions where we work in external evaluation, even when we work in external evaluation, we are part of victims where obviously there may be a thematic lead and a lead consultant doing leading the evaluation and our role, much more a case study role. The lead principal consultant, basically they lead on the thematic analysis, but our work tends to be much more focused on the community. So it keeps being a participatory process. Sometimes they prefer just the community members to be leading the process and evaluating, but many times also implementers are really crucial. So we make a distinction for a case study format as part of an external evaluation. There is no issue in involving the implementers in key roles because actually leaving them out will not transfer learning. So we advocate for that as well. But in terms of our programmatic work, that we work, for example, in supporting processes of advocacy, behavior change, sharing learning horizontally between communities, different processes. Definitely the work is much more with program staff. Sometimes it's with also communication staff when they are engaged in an advocacy campaign, for example, if they are responsible for that. But I would say even though the profile of staff change in M&E, because it's internal M&E, many times the ones doing internal M&E are program staff and not. They, there are organizations who don't have enough staff just to be exclusively male or the person who's exclusively male is in an international office in headquarters guiding, but the person doing all the work is a programmatic person in that country specifically. So I would say programmatic staff is the main area where we support. The other key thing I would say, for example, in humanitarian work, we are trying to work more and more connected because a lot of the agendas are relating to community engagement and accountability. And really, if you do participatory mail, that's a really crucial way in which you can engage more people and be more accountable to them. And not necessarily, you know, like in many other things in the sector, work in silos and think like, you know, mail is one thing, programs is another thing, and accountability to people is another thing. And we will do that just with a feedback form. No, actually, you know, the best way in which you can be accountable, it is to better listen. And the way to better listen is if you connect the dots of the three. So when we do processes like that, we've supported in the past, for example, the Red Cross in Nepal, we train staff across all responsibilities. So it was a joint training between people doing community engagement, people doing delivery of programs, people doing mail, people doing comms, and then working together on how they're going to connect. When you do one process that is in-depth, properly listening to people and making sure you're going to respond to whatever came up. You can use the same process for everything. So when people tell me participation takes a lot of time, you were having the time card. I'm like, not really. It's much more about design. Are you designing it across? And even it can be cost-effective if you're designing it across because in one process you can do multiple things if people give you consent to use it for lots of different purposes. So it's, it's, uh, 
you know, to me, to do people-centered programs, like today is kind of the latest way of calling it, or, you know, localization multiple times. It's just the same processes. Are you doing genuine participation in whatever you are doing? And and not just, uh, you know, I tick the box exercise. Yeah. And you made the link between actually the time that it takes to do participatory. And sometimes it's actually uh, kind of, it is said that it's, it's lengthy and people don't have time, etc. But actually what takes time is building trust, right? Because once you've built that trust, then it's very easy to replicate and build that trust and not lose it. So at every single moment of the process, that trust is being tested, right? Totally. And it can be lost at any moment and then you can't recoup it. But when they trust you because they realize that they are in the driving seat, community members in taking decisions, you know, I will never forget one process that we shared in the past in Cotiwa where, you know, one year later, young people, you know, led a process and created videos about post-conflict election violence. They wrote to us on Facebook saying, hey, just with our pocket money, we went around the country doing screenings. We didn't tell anybody. We didn't tell all, all the actors or the NGOs or the partners. We just did it out of our own interest. And then they wrote a blog about it. We're like, you need to share this with the world. So I'm like, the key aspect to me of engaging people first, obviously, is they are agents of their own life. Uh, they're extremely resilient, but also is recognizing dignity that you know, when you put people at the driving seat, they will not just tell you what you should be doing better or what you are doing right as a civil society actor, but also you don't have to underestimate what they can do by themselves, even if they tell you or not about it. And, and that's the whole point, in my view, on, on most participatory approaches and in our cases, participatory media, but it's really supporting that at the same time of strengthening civil society and improving social change programs is also supporting and strengthening communities because they are the ones driving the realities and the change in their own lives. So those kind of anecdotes to me show really what's possible and it happened to me in other countries where, particularly in relation to peace building, people would say, oh, a few months later, I went around with a USB showing videos in, I don't know, all the churches or all the youth groups because I thought it was important. So I think that is really crucial and it wasn't something programmed or organized. It was the own intention of that young person. I've seen it, you know, on the work that uh, we did together on the uh, peace building and education program in Côte d'Ivoire, notably. It's how, because it was on transitional justice, etc. And it was amazing how these cameras empowered youth, how they felt to, you know, the skills that they gained, but also that they could initiate new ways. And it's kind of, it opened up a world of possibilities. And it also positioned them because you do public screenings, right? As you uh, you go along, you do pro public screening where people kind of, it, when, when used for monitoring and evaluation or mostly evaluation, we use the most significant change where you take the different videos collected and the community chooses the one that represents the most significant change. So that whole process empowers youth and then they can be left with those and they can go on and use either the products itself, the videos as did, you know, going around the country and putting it in a US uh, V-stick. So it's very low tech right at the end. So I wanted to know if there's a distinction that you've seen between urban and rural. Are there limitations both in terms of perspective of how they view participatory video, the use of video? You've worked with indigenous communities uh, because I know that 
image is sometimes very protected uh, because it's linked to some spiritual beliefs. So how did that work in very remote areas and were there any operational problems as well? I would say orphan, actually, if you work through established community groups, it's easier. It's harder when you have to set up a community to come together because you will need more time to bring them together. We have work in a lot of cities, but when you are not working through established projects, long-term projects like this example I was giving you in Sierra Leone, where those groups are already there and then they want to come and reflect on an issue that has been happening long-term, it's much harder to bring that cohesion unless you are working, starting off a process, and then you are helping build that network. I think in the geographic communities in rural contexts are easier because of being geographic and much more about location than only maybe interests or other issues. With indigenous peoples, particularly that we work long term, it's much more about supporting them attend their rights. And this is one more tool in their toolbox to support them in affirming their culture and navigating the realities that they face. So in some contexts, they use it much more to come together, have dialogue and understand each other better because they are even the communities that I visited or some of my colleagues visited that were really small, they still suffer from this technique that, um, you know, I think national governments, even democracies today, have learned through the centuries with the colonization of divide and rule. So that is really used across the world, no matter the government, to undermine indigenous rights to anything, to land, to the use of the language, to everything. So it's really easy to manipulate a group if they are not able to come together and have a joint common voice and aspirations. So, for example, they have used a lot of participatory media for that, for better understanding, coming together, and then when they are stronger as a community, for example, using it to advocate on certain issues or to communicate to outside world, to an international audience, the reality, or sometimes is to, you know, bring their perspective, which is, can be quite different on certain issues for example, climate change or our relationship as humans to nature. Or recently we worked two, three years ago with WHO, supporting them look at what healthy aging means for different older people around the world. And we supported an urban group in Jordan that was mixed of uh, host community and refugees, then semi-peri-urban and rural in Togo, and then an indigenous community in Canada. Looking at their really different perspectives of what healthy aging means to you, not just because of your context and your culture, but also based on your cosmovision of the world, in the case of indigenous peoples, of your traditions and values. And uh, also to highlight to decision makers that, um, of course, uh, traditional research is important in something like public health, but it has its limitations if you don't understand or listen to lived experience of peoples and their points of view of what could be to have a healthy aging life just defined by metrics or by uh, policy standards. So it was a fascinating thing to witness in that case for kind of a joint voice, but at the same time, each one highlighting different aspects based on their geographical context. But for the other work we do with indigenous peoples is really they use the method in lots of different ways. As, as I was saying, uh, a lot they have been using it to preserve their language. So we, for example, work with the Molo people in Kenya where the language had almost disappeared. 
and they had only a few elders left in their community and they started to record video dictionaries to save the language and now they are teaching the language with those videos to the children in the villages so each group can decide how best to use the method to support them in their community development issues, basically. This is just so fascinating. The applicability and the versa, it's so versatile and you can use it for different aims, right? And ends. It can give voice to those who feel that they were not given enough voice more as an advocacy tool. It can actually be as a repository tool to, uh, and I think increasingly this could be used. It's just fascinating. I'm just like so fascinated by what you can do actually even more now than when we, you know, when we work together. And quite, uh, it's a great segue because the, you know, I picked a card that I didn't show you and the one that came is Champions. So it says, you know, it's stakeholders who believe in the project and can help. And you've mentioned a few of how, you know, the participatory process actually does identify and build champions. Can you speak a little bit to that, mostly with regards to, you know, whether they can help you expedite things like be entry points and kind of have more leverage to open doors, so to speak? If champions can also give you access to remote areas or some that are not readily accessible to foreign kind of outfits. And then champions and field offices, because there are dynamics at play at some point. Oh, that's great. So in terms of, I'm going to start with the field offices because it's connected to the other two. I do think absolutely any process where you want to do genuine participation and listen for m e for advocacy, for any purposes, for accountability, you do need uh, somebody who's championing it, ideally more than one person, but sometimes in some organizations it's one individual that really believes in that vision and the importance of it. So I always say if that person is like middle to senior level, They'll have more leverage for all the other issues that you mentioned there and more blockages to kind of unlock them faster. When they are medium to lower level, then they will have to build allies themselves if they don't already have them. But in the cases where it's even middle to higher level, obviously, if you are like the country director, that's amazing. But I'm saying in the middle, if you're a project manager, a senior project manager, and you really see the value, then you can work it out around the structure. It's really important. That's one of the key roles I work on, particularly when we start a project with somebody beyond all the obvious things that you can put in a contractual process to protect participants and that this is going to be a meaningful process. We don't do tokenistic participation. So we only engage in process where we believe the organizations do want to listen and do want to take people seriously. So I spend time in getting to know people and helping them make it happen because uh, the whole point is that they brought us in as an ally to realize that vision. So I do think these are extremely important and that's to me something that perhaps happens in lots of other ways in civil society. And it should happen more explicitly. And, you know, capacity strengthening, we sometimes call it, sometimes it's called coaching. It doesn't matter the label or the name, but to me, it's like the importance of peer-to-peer support, no matter which organization you work for, when you are working on something together and working as peers and as equals and not like trying to avoid, uh, you know, power dynamics and issues that rather than help hinder the work. Because at the end of the day, I always say those issues hinder what can happen differently and better with participants. So that's how we keep the perspective. So they are extremely crucial. I think particularly, I would say, for how much the results are used. 
utilization. And that's why it's really, really important that, you know, the interest and the vision is genuine and they really want to move it through. Then on the access to or the potential support they can give for accessing Jade Keepers to access different groups, that is also community members and not just NGO workers or volunteers. Sometimes those volunteers are already community members, but if they are not, then we normally make that distinction. That's why particularly for evaluation, it's really important, we think, really to engage community members as part of the local evaluation team because they will see things differently in terms of their knowledge and their experience, but also in terms of access and uh, people feeling safe and trust to the team and that this is, is going to be genuine because we also face a lot of times people who have been either they have total research fatigue survey fatigue because they've been asked 20 million times the same thing and nothing changed. We have also witnessed situations where, you know, for advocacy purposes, somebody comes and films something and then extract that without consent or, you know, people don't know how it's going to be used. So lots of things that you want to avoid and you want to make sure that they understand why this is happening and them being fully on board in terms of if at some point they want to remove consent or question something, you need to build that relationship. And for that, you do need that trust through a gatekeeper when that's not uh, direct access from the organization. And I always say also, if you do not have a community group in an evaluation, rethink how are you doing that in the program? Because if people are not able to really come to an activity, sometimes it's not because you did that, but the planning, you know, I had a few conversations like this with a lot of organizations saying, you're not reaching them at program level, why they're going to trust you to come to an m activity. So it also shows you something and it's not necessarily a mistake from your m officer that didn't include them in the sample. It's because they don't trust you and you are not accessing them implementation. Why are they going to come now? So that kind of conversation, quite honest, rather than just wanting to deliver something that is written up as a terms of reference, I feel is extremely important. And I would say with your last point, which was geographic and time, time was the last one. You know, I do think more than for speeding up is for pursuing, because I think the champions some processes can be fast-tracked for the timings of the civil society organizations, the pressure of funders, or the reality on that context. You know, whatever can trigger that something has to be done fast. But in other contexts, I've witnessed the opposite, having to persist because those blockages, agreements with funders or agreements with your partners or with your line managers or access to the community get delayed for lots of different purposes and that you want to pursue and you think it's important and you don't want to give up despite the, the longevity that this is taking. If it's meaningful and if you're working in kind of in a long-term project, no matter which sector, and I think that's really important to have that tenacity of kind of going through the slow moments and keep pushing. And again, we know that's not easy in a sector with high turnover. At least I would say up to national level NGOs, there is high turnover of people, except, you know, maybe local partners where, where they work embedded in their organizations. So you do need to build that relationship so somebody will pursue it. And when somebody kind of pass on the button, kind of transmits that to the next person and doesn't get lost, ideally. Doesn't always happen, but that's the hope or that's what I try to do in projects when we have that kind of pass the button situation. 
is really, really important that the new person kind of don't lose momentum because either they don't understand it or they don't know they have the mandate to do this, you know. They accompany them so they can hit the ground and, and kind of... Exactly. And they feel like they are capable and they, yes, I'm given the mandate to do this because, you know, it's many times, no matter how experienced somebody can be, but it's more about uh, feeling like, yes, you have, you know, this is this is the area that you need to be doing, working on and having that kind of assurance. So I do think they are quite crucial. So I'm really glad you had that as your Trump card, champions. So, you know, I'm conscious of time and uh, I'm just not, but I really, really like how this all came together. Thank you so much for all those insights and, and sharing your experience. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, you see that there's a pattern regardless of context, yeah. right? Uh, human beings are the same in the end. And uh, and that's very interesting because the tool that you use is a storytelling tool, right? Uh, video uh, cameras. By putting people at the back of the camera, in front of the camera, actually they control the whole process, which actually creates trust and renewed engagement or continued engagement. So that's one element that I took away from what you said. I've also take, put some notes there in terms of participation takes time, but the investment is recouped throughout the length of the uh, the process. I also um, took away the importance, and I think this applies to any process, whether you're using video cameras as a tool or any other uh, tool for community engagement, is anchor it in existing community systems and context, not reinventing the wheel, trying to see what exists and what can actually hold it and take it forward. And I think this is the important also parts where you brought in the champions and what the gatekeepers is those institutions can also have those gatekeepers for us that can open doors or uh, explain a process that may be not readily. Uh, and then the last point here is, is about, you know, that kind of uh, geographical context is the applicability across contexts. And the length of time of engagement and preparation may be different. But in the end, it's the same thing. Yes. It's that people, you give a tool so people can tell their stories, can listen to them and see that they're not distorted. Related or overly edited. And they are really like speaking face to face like we are doing now in a direct conversation. Just that not always all stakeholders can do that in a project. So video is like a mediation of that conversation. Totally. The only thing I wanted to say is like, the only context where this would not work is when there is not a possibility of having conversations. So when we work in contexts where either conflict is ongoing, we always ask the partners to think about that aspect. So in terms of your geographic context, that would be, you know, you always have to do absolutely risk assessments to understand that you're adding value and you're doing, not doing harm. So if groups are at a stage where we, they can have these conversations and when they are, then it's an extremely useful tool. But that's really important because it's a group process and it's not necessarily like a one-to-one -one like you would do in an interview. So people have to be able to freely talk in front of each other, even if it's in a safe space and under certain conditions. This was a fantastic conversation. I learned so much and it made me think of, um, you know, other uh, similar experiences with other tools, but in similar contexts. That's why I always say, you know, participatory media is a tool, but actually the dynamics are really similar to any process where you are wanting to do something with a participatory nature in of many participatory, many some people call it collaborative evaluation, empowerment evaluation, lots of different names in the evaluation sector. But I would say is 
really that in nature where you are supporting people go through all the process rather than just answer questions. So we can keep talking for another session. We can do that. Maybe I'll, I'll call you. I'll call you again. So thank you so much for your time, for joining me on this uh, conversation. I'll invite you again. I'm so looking forward to that. Oh, and I can't wait to watch uh, others as well. Take care. Bye, darling. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Rethink's Social Change Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable insights from today's show. Would love if you take a minute to leave us a review. And if you work on social change and are up for the challenge, reach out. And before you go, be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know when we release a new episode. Till then, be the change.